understanding that weird book of Revelation. <clears throat> We're going to do like an overview of chapters 4 and 5 before we look at some of the, the details, zooming in a little more uh, closely. The God who controls history and the work of his son... If I were doing that title right now, I would have said the God who controls history through the work of his son. When you come to chapter 4 in the book of Revelation, you'll notice that it kind of turns a corner. You, You sense there's a shift taking place. Just the way it's worded, that first verse, after this... After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, this is the voice of the Lord, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. I think it's important to uh, get an understanding of the purpose of chapters 4 and 5. Of course, there weren't chapters 4 and 5. Those are a later edition. But I mean the content of those passages. Chapters 4 and 5. They, they, don't, they don't so much contain the action, the things that are going to start happening, so much as they, they set the stage. So if, if the events in chapter 4 and 5 were like a a play or a drama that you were going to see. The first thing chapters 4 and 5 do is they they are the, the backdrop, the curtain, the stage, the setting for all the events that are going to take place. So there's there's an understanding, a perspective that our Lord reveals to John for the church. Remember the seven churches and this church. So there's a, a perspective that, that the Lord wants settling on the hearts of the people in, in preparation for all that they're going to see starting to happen in these, these two chapters. So that perspective is a perspective for all Christians at all times. So the mindset that should be framed in our hearts... It's as important to me and to you as it was to John on Patmos and the early Christian church. It's easy to start thinking about the millennium and the rapture and the beast and and this and that and all those events. And and to just lose sight. How would you feel if you were John? John was a real person. He's an old man at this point. Does he have arthritis? You know what happens to old men. And he's invested all of his adult life in ministry to those those congregations and others, those seven local congregations that we studied in chapter 2 and 3. He's been pouring his life into that. And as you saw last week, the, the vast majority of those local church congregations had, had 
serious spiritual problems. This is written roughly 60 AD. So, so in what? Less than 30 years since our Lord ascended. Here's, here's John in, in less time than I've been here at Cedarview. Less time than that. And the congregations into which he has poured his life are drifting away from the Lord. Have serious spiritual problems. And John can't do anything about it. He's captive on on an island, four miles by four miles square, roughly, called Patmos. He's there for faithfully doing what Jesus had called him to do. And those are the those are the kind of circumstances that can breed a little bit of discouragement and a sense of failure. When the thing most important to the Lord and most important to you, and it looks like it hasn't worked very well, and you're you're in a position where you can't do anything about it, and you have the Lord's assessment of five out of seven of these local congregations and, and the dismal spiritual condition that they're in, and you feel like, so, so, John, what's your future here? What's your plan? This is, this is when the Lord speaks, and he, and he calls John to fix his attention on an open door. Verse 1, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and and the, the voice, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So, I want to give you what I feel is the, the big picture, the big perspective of these two chapters, and then we'll examine some, uh, some details. So, point number one. And then we'll read some, a couple of large blocks of text. And I think, I'm pretty sure those are in your notes. Point number one, the big picture of Revelation 4 and 5 is the sovereignty of God and the key to this world's history revealed through Jesus Christ. The central thing, there's a door. He can see through this door. Remember, it's a vision. It's not the actual structure of heaven with an actual door. It's a vision that he sees. It looks like this. And he sees this open door and through it, the throne. The throne of God Almighty. I get that from verses uh, 5 through 11. We sang the song at the beginning of the service. And we don't always tell you that it's a song about the book of Revelation. I've, I've mentioned before, I sometimes wonder if you're a visitor who had never been to church and you... Flashes of lightning, rainbows, living color. You think somebody's, you know, on an LSD trip or something like that. But it's, 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 a, it's a song picturing the kind of vision that, that John sees. So Revelation 4, starting at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder... Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. I talked about that last week. And before the throne there was, as it, as it were, he's reaching for words, like a sea of glass, like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Like, what what is going on here? What's he seeing? And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They never stop saying that. Do you ever feel like some of the worship songs are too long for your comfort? These creatures have been saying that since this passage of Scripture was written, and they're saying it tonight. Just think about that. It's a long time. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, we'll talk about this, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Now, what you'll notice is there's going to be revealed a contrast between the theme of chapter 4 and that of chapter 5. And and the distinction is very important. So chapter 4, we just read a chunk of it. And it's all about the greatness of Almighty God. You get this picture of the throne, and and he's pictured as one who is to be praised because, verse 11... um, You're worthy to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. There there are uh, many different beings around this majestic throne in Revelation 4. There are no people mentioned. So this is a vision of the utter holiness and majesty of God. It's like... It's like Isaiah's vision of God, seeing him high and lifted up. Or Ezekiel, he has the same kind of experience. And and the emphasis is on, it's on the distance between this God and the likes of us. The, The huge chasm that exists. He's in a league all by himself. No one else can approach that throne. And then you turn to chapter 5, and we're meant to notice something has changed. So, the only way John can see this in vision form is for, is for the revelation to come in terms of picture A and picture B. And they're both important because you realize how different they are. That's what's going on here. Picture A, this throne, these strange beings, the, the otherworldliness of the whole thing. Okay, now the next slide, the next PowerPoint, the next vision that John sees. And it's all about the emphasis, not on God Almighty, he's certainly still there, 
But the emphasis now is going to be on a lamb that has been slain. So we pick it up. Revelation 5. Is this in your notes? Okay, 6 to 13. And between the throne, same throne, but, but a different emphasis. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, I saw a lamb standing. That in itself is strange, eh? I saw a lamb standing as, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. He took the scroll. We're going to be talking about that in a minute. From the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Not before the throne, before the lamb. Each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. A little later in this service, we're going to make little prayer groups. I don't know what you think of your little prayer that you might mumble out with that group, short little prayer for so-and-so and so-and-so, and and I don't know what difference you think it makes. If this is true, that prayer is kept. Something happens in heaven whenever the saints pray. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All right. And they sang a new song. It's new. Saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. Remember, he took the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne. The the scroll is all that's going to unfold. God's plan for human history. Everything that's going to happen between now and the end of time. Everything that's going to happen in your life. Between now and the end of time. This scroll. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. This is not just, this is not just um, the Old Testament Jewish people. This is not just genetic descendants of Abraham. All will become children of Abraham from all different lands and languages and peoples. And you have made them, verse 10, a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's going to happen. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, we don't use that word anymore, myriads. Thousands of thousands, you can't number them. Saying with a loud voice. I sometimes feel sorry for people that think worship is just going to be soft and quiet and mellow in heaven. Saying with a loud voice, these millions all at the same time. What do you think that's going to sound like? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You pile up words. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever 
and ever. So, so now there's this different song theming the worship around the throne, the picture we get in Revelation 5. It's not you have created all things. You're the creator. You made them. It's not just about the majestic greatness of Almighty God, but it's, it's about the approachableness of the throne through the work of the Lamb. Do you see it in 9 and 10? They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open up its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. Now you see the people. They weren't mentioned in that first vision. You ransomed people for God. Three gave testimony tonight in the baptistry. You ransomed people, every language, every nation. You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. So, two, two scenes, two visions. Looks through this open door. Can't see everything, but he sees vision one, the throne of the creator God Almighty. No people. Vision two, like a lamb, like it's been slain, opening up this scroll and, and through his blood, bringing all sorts of people, bringing them to the throne. That, the throne that looked so unapproachable in chapter 4 suddenly has myriads of people coming to it in chapter 5. What's the difference? The lamb that was slain. And the church ought to just say, praise God. That's just, what a wonderful picture that is is. Leads to the second point. Chapter 5 zeroes in in focus not just to the lamb that had been slain, but this sealed book, this scroll, depending on what translation you have. Some of the really contemporary translations will have a sealed book, some will have scroll but the idea is the same. It's a, it's a sealed document. A sealed book of this world's future in, in the will of God. You just see it in the beginning of the fifth chapter. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. It's, it's a scroll written within. And on the back, a lot of writing, a lot of details. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel... The emphasis there is, here's a, an angel with might. Remember the story, the mysterious story when I was pastoring in Lanigan and the little baby cherubs that my wife had hanging on the Christmas tree and she had a meeting at the church at night and to this day no one knows what happened but when she came home all the wings were snapped off the back of those fat little baby cherubs. She asked what happened. I said, an enemy has done this. <laughs> what a stupid picture of what angels are like. They're not little babies in diapers. We're going to read Revelation. You're going to see a little later on where John talks about an angel that he saw who plants one foot in the ocean and one foot on the dry land. That's an angel. So there's this strong angel who, who, who's going to open this? We can't open the seals. It's, it's all that is to come. This, this book of God's plan for the future, for the world and for all who are in it. We, we can't get at this book. It's a strong angel who says it. And it's the Lamb who will open this up. 
who will unfold it. So there's the book of Revelation. That's what we're studying. And then there's a sealed book inside the book of Revelation. So in other words, there's, there's a book within a book. And this book, like ancient wills of that day, it was sealed with seven seals. The way wills were attested. Seven different people would witness the will, then seal it. And when the time came to open the will, only those who had sealed it were supposed to open it. But this picture is different. This is a book that's sealed and nobody, nobody can pry it open. Nobody can get it open. That sealed book, right there, is going to be what Revelation chapters 5 through 18 is all about. So so the dominant theme of the rest of this study is going to be what's in this sealed book that the Lamb opens? And the question is, given what we just studied in Revelation 4, the sovereignty of God, the might of God, the creative power of God who made all things, the logical question is, Why doesn't God just rip the book open by himself? Surely he's not unable to. He's almighty. And the answer to that question is the most important thing you can learn from the book of Revelation. It's more important than the time of the rapture or the second coming, the nature of the millennium, the identity of the Antichrist, or anything else that people give wild speculation about. Here is how God is going to fulfill his will regarding this fallen, sinful planet. Everything that's going to unfold between now and the end of time in the course of this world and your life is tied to his redemptive work, his redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. Now just, I said a lot there, and my concern is that a lot of it just went by. Consider the implications of what I just said. Consider the implications of this central fact for all of the world's religions trying to reach and please God. They they can't open that book. Judaism can't open that book. Islam can't open that book. Hinduism can't open that book. Pick any religion you want. They, They can't get at the heart of what God is doing in this world. And what his plan is for this world. The fifth chapter is crucial. How he has chosen to open up the scroll of his will for this entire planet. Point number three. Some practical life lessons. You still with me? All right. What are the lessons for people like us... We aren't on Patmos. We're in Newmarket. What are some of the lessons for us from these two chapters? Lessons for all Christians living at all times. There were lessons for the Apostle John, and they're the lessons for you, and they're the lessons for me. A, life lesson number one. If you want to overcome in any trying circumstance you face, You need to get hold of an eternal perspective and and never let it go. 
And so this starts out, I read it, I won't read it again, Revelation 4, 1 and 2, the open door of the throne of God. John, John needs to see an eternal perspective, an open door. It's not an open door to Nebraska or Alberta or Newfoundland. It's an open door to heaven. And what he sees is the throne of God. And that's what Jesus calls John to fix his attention on. John in the middle of all his turmoil. John in the midst of all what could well be interpreted as his failure. There, there, there is John. And the Lord is the one who speaks, a voice like a trumpet. So it's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. This, this piercing command to John, never forget the throne. There's a lot of stuff coming in the rest of this vision that's horrifying. John, start with the throne of God. Start with the throne of God. So John's brought to the vantage point of the future but he's not brought there just so he can make his guesses and draw up charts about Bible prophecy. He's in a a mess right now, and he's being called to bring this promise of God's future into the mess of his present. All problems need to be set. So, So this isn't in your notes. The Lamb opens up this, this scroll. Nobody knows what's in it. Okay? The scroll, as you'll see, it's, it's God's, it's history from this point on. Everything that's going to happen on earth. Everything you see on whatever your network is, CNN, CNN if you're on the left and Fox if you're on the right, or CBS or CBC or NBC or whatever you watch, you're going to see all sorts of events. You can turn them on any night of the week. That, that's all in that scroll. It's all in there. And then your life personally and mine. We don't see what's coming, do we? We don't see what's coming. There, there. Tony Shelton is gone to be with Jesus. I look at faces. There are people sitting in this room right now who are battling cancer. some really seriously and they don't know the future there's people in this room that have recently lost a loved one and the future looks a lot lonelier than it did before there's a whole bunch of us in this room who who me you there's a whole bunch of us in this room who are going to find out something about our future that we don't like that's just a fact there are people in this room, look at the crowd, there are people in this room right now, and somewhere down the road, you're going to get a bad report about your health. You're fine now. And you don't know when that's coming. Do you get what I'm saying about this future of ours? Your trip to the hospital is coming. What do we know for sure here? Well, what we know is, The lamb that was slain, the one who redeemed you, is the one who, all of the future events and everything that comes, pleasant and unpleasant, seen and unseen, planned and unplanned, they are 
They are in the hands of one who loved us and died for us and who will never let us slip out of his grip. And you can bank on it. All the things you don't know about the future are less important. I didn't say unimportant. I said less important than knowing the one who holds the scroll. And what what Jesus is showing John, it's the vision. And what is being unfolded in visual form is what Paul unpacks in theological form at the end of Romans 8. Nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Only John is seeing it instead of just hearing it. This is the one who holds the future. B, lesson number two. Don't look for a door out of your circumstances. Look for a door into God's promise and presence. I I think I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say there's not always a door out of your circumstances. Not always. Sometimes there is, but not always. There is always a door into God's presence. Apparently, this message actually needs to be trumpeted into the ears of followers of Jesus. This is the Apostle John, who spent so much time with Jesus. 4.1, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet. It's easier, isn't it, to, to look for a way out of situations than looking for God's presence and help in situations. I, I'm not alone. I know the staff would say the same thing. We talk to people every week who haven't given God a fair chance and they're already looking for a way out of their marriage. There's people looking for ways out of challenging commitments. There's people looking for ways out of any kind of circumstance that stretches and sometimes hurts. We sing it all the time. Listen, God, God will make a way. Take a door into his presence and promise, even if there isn't a door out of your present circumstances. And see, life lesson number three. Stay close to Jesus through recommitting yourself to passionate, thoughtful worship of the Lamb. This point's really important to me. I press, I don't think I press unreasonably, but I I press as much as I can this church into thoughtful uh, but expressive praise and worship of the Lord. I couldn't count, but I think if you attend here regularly, you will admit this is true. I couldn't count the number of times I get up after singing a certain chorus and I'll say, "Did, did you think about this phrase or that phrase Because I don't care if we're dancing in the aisles. If we don't get what we're singing, it's not good worship. And then I pretty much don't just say, let's us raise our hands and have a shout and good time. I I usually talk about why I think there's biblical reasons for that kind of worship. And it has nothing to do with being Pentecostal or charismatic. It has to do with being scriptural. What we're going to see as we work through these chapters... You're going to see 
that every time there's some kind of vision, watch for it next week, every time as the book is opened and you start to see the future events unfolding, here's what I'm saying. Every time there's a major new event recorded, a future event, it is preceded and followed every time by a vision of praise and worship around the throne of God in heaven. So, so it'll, be, it'll be an end time event. But before that, you'll get a picture of the throne, like, like chapter 4 starts with. And they're worshiping and praising God. Then you'll see some end time event. At the close of that, you'll get another vision of the throne. And you'll see the people worshiping and praising God. Then you'll get another event. After that event, you'll get another picture of the throne and the people worshiping and praising God. And, and maybe you've noticed, whenever, whenever I lead our church into some pressing issue of corporate prayer, I almost always, I don't always explain it, but I almost always have the congregation stand. We're praying about something deathly serious, deathly important, and I will almost always have the church stand and I'll say, church, before we start, let's just give strong praise to the Lord. And it has nothing to do with, I weary with people thinking, well, it's just you goofy charismatics. It, it, it is the biblical pattern of heaven itself. It's the biblical pattern of heaven itself around the throne. It has nothing to do with just some kind of fanatical emotionalism. It's, it's, it's a divine pattern in all eternity. Worship puts us in the company with those already around the throne of God. That's where Tony is right now. That's where my dad is right now. That's where all sorts of people, Bob Lurie, that's where he is right now, worshiping around the throne. And when we enter into some kind of intercession, some kind of pressing point of need, we join with a much larger congregation in exalting the Lord who can bring his promise to bear on those needs. I'm sorry for yelling. When we bring requests to the Lord, we aren't just murmuring and we aren't just complaining. We know the one to whom we speak. So when you face tough times, remember the eternal throne of God. Remember the difference between the eternal and the temporary. Look through that open door into the presence through the Lamb whose blood was slain to draw men and women around the throne that looked so impermeable in chapter 4 to any evidence of grace and love. And worship him in spirit and in truth. We'll get into the details of those chapters next week. Let's pray.